Hello, my fellow crime divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi, and I want to say thank you so much for listening. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you so much, and I really hope you enjoy listening to my deep dives into crime. As always, we want to keep it respectful. We want to keep it as accurate as possible because we are speaking about some of the most tragic moments in people's lives. We want to keep it respectful for the families and the friends of all involved. For today, we are going to be talking about the shocking double murder suicide of the Benoit family. Let's get right into the case. So we are going to be discussing the wrestler known as Christopher Michael Benoit. He was born on May 21st, 1967 in Quebec, Canada. His father's name was Michael Benoit and his mother's name was Margaret. Now he was born in Quebec, but he was raised in Alberta, Canada. Chris had actually been in a car accident at the age of six and his head went through the windshield and he was in the hospital for three days but he had no permanent brain injury now i bring this up because it's going to be pretty crucial towards the end when we speak about everything that happened and how his state of mind at the time really could have played a role in it so growing up chris always wanted to be a wrestler he knew this about himself from a very young age and he began to lift weights every day and at the age of 13 he was breaking high school weightlifting records just hanging out in his basement in the privacy of his own home in 1985 chris finally began his wrestling career at 18 after graduating from archbishop o'leary catholic high school so he entered Stu hart's stampede wrestling promotion which was based out of calgary alberta which is in canada and chris won his first title in the 1988 stampede british commonwealth mid heavyweight championship he also won four international tag team titles and three more British Commonwealth titles. In 1989, Stampede Wrestling ended, so Chris had to go on and pursue other career options. And this is when he went to wrestle in Japan that same year. In Japan, he wrestled with the New Japan Pro Wrestling promotion, and he had to train pretty tough for a full year before he could even start competing. When this year of training was up, he was introduced as a masked wrestler called the Pegasus Kid. Now, Chris actually hated wearing the mask that went with his persona of the Pegasus Kid, but it just became a part of his identity and he kind of just embraced it for the most part. He was more focused on his wrestling. And eventually he won the Super J Cup tournament twice. And in 1990, he was one of the few wrestlers that was born outside of Japan to ever hold the junior heavyweight title for New Japan Pro Wrestling. He also won the WWF light heavyweight title and he held it for a year. In 1992, eventually he moved on from New Japan Pro Wrestling and he signed with World Champion Wrestling or WCW. So there's a lot of different wrestling promotions and names. I know it can get confusing. I'm gonna try to keep it as clear as possible because they all sound pretty similar. So Chris was not with WCW for long at the time and he kind of started going back and forth between WCW and ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling. So ECW is a wrestling promotion that I can really only describe as just being damn crazy as hell. It's crazy. You know, it's raw, it's real, it's rough, and it's just a lot more blood and gore than um, say WWF or WCW. When I think of ECW, I think of New Jack, RIP New Jack. If you don't know who he is, look him up because he was a crazy person. He was a crazy man, but RIP New Jack. I might do a wrestling series I could do a whole episode on New Jack, honestly. Um, Let me know if you guys are into that, doing a series just for wrestlers because there's so many, so many wild stories. So while Chris was in ECW, he actually broke the neck of another wrestler by accident. And his name was Terrence Brunk, but he was known as a stage name, Sabu. And this happened during a match in 1994. And Sabu was actually okay. Like he was fine. He only sat out for a week. He probably should have sat out longer given the severity of his injury, But when it came to, you know, the wrestling world, that was kind of how they did things, you know, wrestling through the pain. That was just, I guess, what everyone did back then. Now, after Chris accidentally broke Sabu's neck, he was dubbed the Canadian Crippler. And he really took this name and used it as a strength and he used it as a way to really intimidate his opponents. And this gave him kind of, you know, that bad boy image in a way. Now, after he spent some time in ECW, he returned to WCW in 1995. Chris 
Phoenix's big break really came when he came back to WCW and he caught the attention of Ric Flair. Now, Ric Flair is a wrestler who was a part of the Four Horsemen, which is an exclusive wrestling team that is really only reserved for certain wrestlers that are strong and skilled. And, you know, it's just a different vibe going on with the Four Horsemen. They've described themselves as being the Beatles, Elvis, and the Rolling Stones all wrapped into one so pretty ego driven but i guess that's how you have to be if you're a wrestler so the original group broke up people just go in and out of the wcw or the wrestling world so the original team kind of splintered but rick flair he stayed behind and he chose to kind of recruit other wrestlers that were coming in in order to make up the new four horsemen and at the time when chris joined the team it consisted of rick flair another wrestler named arn anderson and Brian Pillman. Brian Pillman also has a wild story. So again, if you want a wrestling series, let me know. It's a lot. So once Chris joined the Four Horsemen, this is really where he crossed paths with who would become his future wife, Nancy Sullivan. So we're gonna jump back and talk about Nancy. So Nancy Elizabeth Toffoloni, that was her maiden name, was born on May 17th, 1964 in Boston, Massachusetts. Her parents' names were Paul and Maureen Toffoloni and she had a sister named Sandra. At some point the family moved to Florida and Nancy graduated from DeLand High School. She married her high school sweetheart Jim Doss. They were pretty into wrestling as a couple you know they really liked to go to matches. At the time Nancy had a job answering phones for an insurance agency but once she attended a wrestling show in Orlando she was actually handpicked to be a cover model and she was featured on the cover of the June 1984 issue of Wrestling All stars. Now Nancy was gorgeous in my opinion and apparently wrestler and booker Kevin Sullivan thought so too because she really caught his eye and he said I have to have this girl you know somehow incorporated into my act and he was a booker so he had the power to set up matches and write storylines and recruit people that he felt could be good for the industry. So he saw Nancy and he was like I want her and with that Nancy made her ring debut just months after being featured on the cover of wrestling all-stars and she was known as fallen angel she was the valet of kevin sullivan's army of darkness which was an entourage that he had created around his persona again he was a booker so he had the power to pretty much create any kind of persona that he wanted recruit anyone that he wanted and again she was a valet so a valet is someone who they are just like a really beautiful woman who kind of accompanies the team and you know they really bring up their group average they have a lot of sex appeal, you know, more so of an appearance-based thing. Nancy wasn't actually wrestling. She was just pretty much there for looks, but she was beautiful. Nancy and Kevin, they worked so closely together that eventually Nancy left her husband Jim for him and they got married. I've seen a few different dates of when they got married. I saw that they got married in 1985 and then I saw that they got married in 1992. Not sure which one is true, so I'm gonna put them both in here. I mean, this was a thing that really happened a lot in the wrestling world because they spent so much time on the road. You were around these people all the time. So you did kind of just form close bonds with them. And sometimes people fell in love. That's just how it went. So Nancy and Kevin at this point were pretty much a package deal. And at the time that they met, they were wrestling with WWF, which stood for World Wrestling Federation. And they decided to leave WWF and go to WCW. At the time that they went to WCW, it was pretty new and it was here that Nancy was transformed into a new character named Woman and this is arguably her most popular character when she was Fallen Angel that was kind of her inception that was kind of her coming out but Woman was more of her real life persona so that was arguably her biggest most well-known position that she had in the wrestling world at the time you know after they joined WCW Nancy and Kevin left for a little bit and went to ECW and that's the extreme damn crazy wrestling promotion that I was talking about earlier. Once they went to ECW, Nancy really got popular. She gained a lot of popularity and she took this and went back to WCW along with Kevin. So Nancy took her character woman and she became the manager and valet of Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen. Rick really wanted her. He loved her look and he was like, hey, you know, I gotta have you. And Kevin was like, sure, go ahead. We're gonna make a new angle 
angle anyway because they do kind of write storylines they want to switch it up so they don't get stale so kevin said yeah sure go ahead chris at the time was a part of the four horsemen so him and nancy met and they became pretty good friends so kevin decides hey let's create a storyline right where chris and nancy are having an affair and it was kind of like hmm interesting okay kevin you have the power to write these storylines and you know you want to make a fake affair storyline involving your real life wife okay you know maybe just want to spice it up that's fine but then let it be known kevin and nancy were having some pretty serious issues at this time they had been having issues for about six months or so and they were actually living separately so you're kind of starting to look at kevin a little odd like "Mm, okay you create a storyline where your real wife is having a fake affair oh and you're also living separately not doing the best interesting so you may be asking kevin what the hell were you thinking why why would you do this and it wasn't just kept in the ring this affair storyline they really wanted to sell this a lot so kevin had them flying to matches together he had them staying in hotels together just to sell it to the public i mean he was really committed and this had a lot to do with the wrestling art known as kayfabe which is spelled k-a-y-f-a-b-e now kayfabe is really just the art of the wrestlers acting out these storylines that were written for them as if they were real because wrestling is performative they're not actually hurting each other i'm sorry if i'm crushing your childhood dreams right now but i think everybody knows by now that wrestling is fake it's still interesting to watch i think but it's not real and they're not really hurting each other sometimes accidents do happen and sometimes they do get hurt but they're not actually hurting each other they're just giving the illusion that they're hurting each other what makes what happened in the ring so interesting is the storylines that appear to kind of spill over into real life however these real life storylines are not always very real but they act them out as if they are and that's known as kayfabe and kevin sullivan really wanted to sell this affair and he really didn't think that anything would happen because at the time chris had a pregnant wife and she was pregnant with their daughter megan at the time so he was just like you know chris is quiet he's to himself nothing's gonna happen it's gonna be fine we'll be good but that's not what happened the affair pretty soon turned into a real one and they really started to connect with one another a lot because nancy and kevin as i said earlier they were having some pretty serious issues they were they weren't even living together and on top of that their relationship even turned abusive kevin was hitting nancy nancy showed up to work one day with a black eye and she confided in chris she leaned on him for support because she was in a marriage that just was pretty much over at this point you know it it had turned abusive chris of course he was not happy about this and he was actually set to compete against kevin in a match called bash at the beach in daytona beach florida in 1997 when the match starts out you know they're fighting they both look great it's going normal but then eventually it starts to turn pretty serious chris actually starts hitting kevin and he's actually fighting him he hit kevin so hard that he broke his eardrum i can't even imagine how much that hurts so chris won the fight but kevin was pissed because he knew that chris was hitting him for real i mean he could feel it he could tell so kevin he's like let's take this shit backstage so they start fighting backstage nancy was not there but her sister sandra was and she was summoned backstage and they were like oh my gosh chris and kevin are fighting do something so sandra goes back there and she kind of tries to break it up she tries to mediate eventually they kind of calm down and kevin goes sandra come on come with me let's go and chris says no sandra come with me sandra's like "Mm, i don't know who to go to do i go to my brother-in-law or do i go to the man that my sister is falling in love with because mind you yes that was her brother-in-law but he was separated from her sister so sandra doesn't know what to do she's stuck in the middle it's like she's figuratively representing nancy chris decides to settle it once and for all and he calls nancy up and he's like what does she do well nancy tells sandra to go with Chris and not Kevin. This pretty much let Kevin know Nancy was done with him. And she was. That same year, Nancy left Kevin for Chris. Now keep in mind, Chris was married to his first wife, Martina. They got married sometime in the 80s and they had already had a son named David just three years prior. And at this time, Martina had actually given birth to her and Chris's daughter named Megan. This union of Chris and Nancy, it did break up Chris's family, but 
he felt like Nancy was who he wanted to be with. Nancy felt like Chris was who she wanted to be with. So they both left their spouses for one another. On February 25th, 2000, they had a son named Daniel and he was so cute. Just months later, Nancy and Chris got married on November 23rd and Daniel was actually the best man, which I think is just adorable. Eventually, Chris decided to leave WCW and go to WWE. Nancy decided to end her career after around 16 years in the business because, you know, she was a wife and she just had a child and she really just wanted to settle down and just support Chris in his career. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that Nancy was actually in the wrestling industry longer than Chris. Yeah, she wasn't a wrestler, but she had a pretty important role and she really brought a lot of fans to the acts that she managed or valeted for. So she was pretty important in my opinion. So life for Chris and Nancy was going fairly well up until a point. They began to start having some marital issues and they got so bad that Nancy actually filed for divorce in 2003 after only three years of marriage. She also petitioned for a protection from domestic abuse, claiming that Chris lost his temper a lot. Um, He would threaten to hit her. He would damage their home and their personal belongings. And Nancy was really scared for her and Daniel's safety. So she felt like it was best if they just went their separate ways. But just three months later, she just dismissed everything and they reconciled. However, this wasn't the end of their issues. Things just kept getting worse and worse. And they got even worse when Chris's best friend and fellow wrestler, Eddie Guerrero, passed away. So Eddie died on November 13th in 2005 from heart disease at only 38 years old due to prolonged drug use. Now I'm going to go into Eddie's death a little bit because it was a very huge turning point for Chris. Some people say that this was really the beginning of the end for him. So Eddie, Chris, and Eddie's nephew Chavo were attending a match in Minneapolis. Each wrestler got their own room and yeah, they were just kind of hanging out in the night of November 12th. They said, we're going to go work out tomorrow morning. So they had made that plan and then everyone went back to their rooms. So Chavo Guerrero, Eddie's nephew, he gets a call from hotel employees saying that Eddie missed his wake up call. And they said, you know, we want you to go down to his room, check on him, make sure he's okay. So Chavo said, yeah, sure. I'll go down. So Chavo goes to check on him and he's accompanied by some hotel workers so they can help him get into the room. So once they use the master key to get into Eddie's room, they realize that the latch is on the door. And Chavo, at this point, he's a little worried because that means Eddie is in the room. So Chavo breaks the door down. And when he goes inside, he finds Eddie Guerrero on the floor face down. So he runs over to him. He turns him over and he sees that he's just gurgling and kind of gasping for air. He can't breathe. And by that point, it was too late. And Eddie actually passed away in Chavo's arms. This was such a huge loss for Chris. Chavo had to call Chris, who was waiting for the two of them that morning to go work out before their match. And, you know, Chavo had to call Chris and let him know that Eddie had been found dead in his hotel room. And Chavo recalls hearing Chris just let out this really deep wail, like from the depths of his soul. He knew Chris was just heartbroken. And Chris was so quiet. He was really reserved and he really only opened up to Eddie. I mean, Chris was all about his wrestling and he was, you know, extremely close to Eddie. He didn't show much emotion and he was just absolutely heartbroken, constantly crying. And I'm going to play a clip of Chris honoring Eddie in the WWE tribute that they had for him that night. Eddie Guerrero is my best friend and I'm I'm sure there's a lot of people that he knew that would be able to say the, the, the same thing about him. He was such, such a beautiful person, such a kind-hearted person. Um, I couldn't find the, the right, I couldn't find the words. Words couldn't describe what, what kind of a, a human being Eddie truly was. Um, I, I've known Eddie for just about 15 years and spent a good portion of them 15 years with him on the road. Uh, we've laughed together, cried together, you know, fought each other. We, we love you. I miss you. Hey, you made you made 
made such a great impression on, on my life. And I want to thank you for everything you've ever given me. And I want to thank you from my heart and tell you that I love you and I'll never forget you. And I will see each other again. I love you, Eddie. <laughs> So as you can hear, Chris was absolutely heartbroken by the passing of his best friend and he really did struggle to cope with this loss. So he turned to religion. Eddie was known to be pretty religious and he would oftentimes share Bible stories with Chris and just read scripture to him. And you know, Chris really respected Eddie and a lot of what he said and whatever he taught him. So he really internalized that once Eddie passed and he used it to help him cope. But Chris still wasn't doing that well. He withdrew from pretty much everyone in his life, including Nancy, and she became really worried about him. Chris would even start talking about kids of wrestlers that had been kidnapped or wrestlers that had been hurt by crazed fans. Like he was just getting really, really paranoid and just talking about all these bad things that could happen to him. And he got so paranoid that he started taking different cars and different routes to the gym that he had been going to for years. Chris was just described as being really depressed, very irritable, and just always mad. And he pushed Nancy away a lot around this time. Seeing how depressed and upset her husband was, Nancy goes to Eddie Guerrero's wife, Vicky, who's also very much mourning his death. And they come up with the idea of getting Chris a journal that he can use to write to Eddie in order to channel his pain about this horrible tragedy. And Chris uses this journal to write to Eddie and honestly it did help a little bit but he was still struggling a lot because at the end of the day nothing could bring his friend back and Chris would always be on the road he really tried to throw himself into his work and just focus on wrestling but Chris was constantly reminded of Eddie everywhere he went on the road he would tell other wrestlers wow last time I was here I was with Eddie everything reminds me of Eddie and people really started to worry about him they even felt like he should quit wrestling until he learned to cope with Eddie's death a little more because that was what they did together majority of the time was be on the road. So I can imagine that everything on the road reminded him of Eddie. Nancy especially wanted Chris to quit, but he wouldn't do it. He needed an outlet and he wasn't going to stop working. I think he felt like that was the one thing that he had left with Eddie, the fact that they both wrestled together. Chris not quitting wrestling and not taking the proper time to grieve Eddie's passing would just continue to make his mental state worse and worse. And that brings us to the night of June 23rd, 2000. So that night, Chris was set to ride to Laredo, Texas for a match with Chavo, Eddie's nephew, and another wrestler named Scott Armstrong. So before Chavo was supposed to pick Chris up, mind you, this was on a Saturday, Chris called him and let him know. He said, hey, I can't make it. Nancy and Daniel have food poisoning and I have to take care of them. So Chavo says, oh, you know, are they okay? And Chris says, yeah, they'll be okay. They're fine. And before hanging up, Chris says, Chavo, I love you. And Chavo says it back, but he kind of gets the vibe that something's a little off, but just kind of disregards it, keeps it moving. Then Chavo asks him, you know, hey, are you okay? And Chris says, yes, I'm just tired. Then they hang up and Chavo just continues on to Laredo with Scott. The next day, Sunday, June 24th, it's around 5.30 in the morning, Chavo is woken up by a text from Chris that reads, the dogs are in the enclosed pool area and the back door is open. 30 seconds later, Chavo gets a text from Nancy's phone saying the exact same thing. And then he gets another text that has Chris's address on it. So he's like, what the hell? He's very confused, has no idea why he's sending him these messages. And he's like, I'm supposed to be picking Chris up from the airport this morning when, you know, what is he talking about? So he had no idea what was going on, but Chavo decides to get up for the day. I'm not sure if he went back to sleep and then got up, but either way, he got up for the day and he gets breakfast with Scott Armstrong, the other wrestler that he rode to Laredo with. And he asks him, did you get a weird text from Chris? And Scott says, yeah, I, I did. And he says, you know, what did it say? Shows the message and it says the exact same thing as Chavo's, which I'll read for you again. The dogs are in the enclosed pool area and the back door is open. So this is a really weird text to get when there's no context. It had nothing to do with the conversation that they had had earlier or the day before. So he was just like, I'm so confused. Neither of them heard from Chris after this. So they were supposed to pick him up from the airport, never heard from him. So they just continued on with their day and went to their match. And the next day, Monday, June 20. 
25th, Chavo and Scott drive to Corpus Christi for their next match. And still, they haven't heard from Chris. And when they get to Corpus, the head of talent relations, Johnny Ace, he comes up to Chavo and asks him if he's heard from Chris. And Chavo says, no, I haven't, but I got this really weird text from him. So he shows Johnny Ace the text that he got from Chris. And Johnny's like, oh my gosh, why didn't you show us this sooner? You know, nobody's heard from him. We've been looking for him. And Chavo's kind of like, oh, so this is serious. You know, he's like, what the hell's going on? Everybody's been looking for Chris and no one's heard from him. He's missed two matches at this point, or he's missed one match so far. And he's about to miss the second one because no one can find him. Everybody at this point is pretty worried. And Vince McMahon, CEO of WWE at the time, he decides to send a wellness check to Chris and Nancy's house in Fayetteville, Georgia, because he's pretty concerned. And I'm going to play that 911 call for you here. Hi, uh, I just spoke to one of the other officers there. My name is Dennis Big, and I'm a retired detective in New York City. I run the security for World Wrestling, and one of our wrestlers that lives down there is missing. And he told me to just to say we need a welfare check done. Okay, what's the address? Uh, 1.30... Green Meadow Lane. And what's his name? Uh, Chris Benoit. It's spelled B-E-N-O-I-T. Okay, and he's a, a wrestler? Yes, he's, what happened, he's a very religious gentleman, and yesterday he was supposed to show up at a pay-per-view and never got on the plane, never showed up. They tried to reach his wife, Nancy. She doesn't answer. They tried to call his house. It's, unlo- it's, it's out of character for him. So at uh, 3 o'clock this morning, there was a message to left for one of the other wrestlers, and basically it says... Uh Uh, The dogs are in the backyard. The back door is open. Goodbye. So after the welfare check was completed, Vince McMahon decided to call a meeting at the ring before the show for all the wrestlers and all the workers in attendance. And he has to break the extremely shocking news that Chris, Nancy, and Daniel were all dead. Eddie Guerrero's wife, Vicky, she worked for WWE at the time and she was just absolutely distraught, absolutely heartbroken. She immediately broke down and she was very close to the family, especially Nancy, because Nancy really did a lot to help her when Eddie passed. She would help take care of her children while Vicky was mourning. So it was a very big loss for her. And she was very close to Chris as well because they both mourned Eddie's loss very similarly because they both had such a close relationship with him. She was just shocked and couldn't believe it. It was very, very jarring as you can imagine. So Lieutenant Larry Alden, he was one of two policemen that was called upon to perform the welfare check at Chris and Nancy's house. And this is kind of just a little coincidence, but Larry and Chris actually went to the same gym. So I think this was a pretty small town that they lived in, in Fayetteville, Georgia. And after Lieutenant Alden arrived on the scene, they were met with Chris and Nancy's next door neighbor. She claimed that she hadn't seen anybody go in or out of the house for about three to four days. And in the backyard of the home, as the text said, there were two big German shepherds. And Lieutenant Alden asked the neighbor if she would be comfortable putting the dogs inside. She said this was fine because she actually would feed the dogs and look after them whenever Chris and Nancy would go out of town. So she was pretty comfortable with doing this. The dogs were comfortable around her. So she goes and puts the dogs in the house and Lieutenant Alden remembers it taking a little bit too long for her to do this. So he's kind of like waiting on her, like, where is she? What is she doing? And as he's thinking this, the neighbor runs back outside screaming that Daniel Benoit, Chris and Nancy's seven-year-old son, was dead. So Lieutenant Alden, along with his partner, tell the neighbor to get out of the house immediately. And they enter the home very, very carefully, just in case whoever may have done this was still inside the house. So they have to make sure that they clear the whole house before they can say, okay, what's going on? Let's investigate. So Lieutenant Alden, he recalls saying that there was just a smell of death in the home upon entering and he decides to go up the staircase in the house that led to Daniel's bedroom and that's where they found his body. He was laying face down in his bed. They continue to go through the house and clear the rooms to make sure whoever did this again is not in the house to make sure there's no immediate threat and as they're doing this they came across the body of Nancy Benoit. She was found laying on the floor wrapped in either a blanket or a rug and she was only 43 years old. The last room that Lieutenant Lieutenant Alden and his partner cleared was the home gym. And when they entered, 
heard, they saw Chris in a reflection of a mirror that was positioned in front of him. Lieutenant Alden's partner, she raises her gun and she orders Chris to put his hands up. But this is when she realizes that there's actually a cable wrapped around Chris's neck that was attached to some weights and they realized that he was dead too. And it wasn't until the discovery of Chris's body with the cables around his neck that they kind of immediately put it together that this was most likely a murder-suicide. So now we're gonna go back and recount the events of that past weekend that led up to this moment of all three of their bodies being found. I do wanna give a quick trigger warning. We are speaking about the death of a child. We're speaking about suicide and I am going to be going into the details. So I just want you guys to be aware. If you're not comfortable with this, I will give you a timestamp in the description to skip ahead to just in case you don't wanna hear anything that you're not comfortable with. So on Friday, June 22nd, Chris, Nancy, and Daniel, they'd had a barbecue by the pool together. And that evening, Chris and Nancy had gotten into a pretty big argument that turned very serious. Chris restrained Nancy with duct tape around her ankles and he tied a cable around both of her wrists. And while he was restraining her with the cable, he put his knee in her back and broke it. Then he used a telephone cord to strangle her. And after this, he placed a Bible next to her body. And if you recall in the 911 call that I played for you, it was said that Chris was a very religious man. So this could have something to do with why he chose to place a Bible next to her body. And investigators also made note of the fact that there were beer cans and wine bottles just laying around the home. The next morning, Saturday, June 23rd, Chris gave his son Daniel Xanax to sedate him and he suffocated him in his room. A Bible was also placed next to his body. This was the night that Chris called Chavo and let him know that he wasn't going to be able to make the match because Nancy and Daniel had food poisoning. And Chris told some people that he had to take them to the hospital and then he told other people that he was gonna be taking care of them. A slight inconsistency, but the entire story was a lie. So I don't think he was really worried about being consistent with it because by this point, they were both already dead. Chris went to bed that night with Nancy and Daniel's bodies in the house. The next morning, Sunday, June 24th, Chris makes a few Google searches. And one of them was a Bible story about the prophet Elijah and the resurrection of a deceased boy. And another one was the quickest and most painless way to break your own neck. After Chris makes these Google searches, it's believed that he went down to his home gym with a half drunk bottle of wine. Then he went to the lat pull down machine and took the bar off. And if you don't know what that is, that's the machine that you kind of grab the bar and you pull it down and you adjust the weights on the side. And however much weight is on the side is how much weight you're pulling. That's the best way I know how to describe it. Yeah, he went to the lat pull down machine. He took the bar off and then he wrapped a towel around his neck. And then he took the metal cord from the machine and wrapped it around his neck neck over the towel, I guess, to kind of cushion the pain. Then he adjusted the weights to 240 pounds, released the bar that he was holding, and ultimately ended up committing suicide. And investigators found a suicide note that was written by Chris, and it was placed in a Bible that was found in the house. And it said something along the lines of, I'm preparing to leave this earth. So now I'm going to get into the autopsies of the three members of the Benoit family. I want to give another quick trigger warning, just in case you want to skip ahead. If there's something that you may not be comfortable hearing, I completely understand. I will put a timestamp in the description so you will know how far to skip ahead. So Chris's official cause of death was suicide by hanging. Now his blood and urine were both tested and he tested negative for alcohol. And a lot of people are very confused. They're like, there was a bottle of wine found at the scene as well as 10 beer cans near his body. So how did he test negative for alcohol? Well, for a blood test, alcohol can be detected in your blood for up to six hours and it can be detected in your urine for up to 12 to 24 hours. We don't know when Chris consumed this alcohol. He could have consumed it the night before he killed himself. He could have consumed it two days before he killed himself. We don't know. So it's very possible that he could have consumed alcohol, but by the time his blood and urine were tested, it was no longer present. Chris also had 10 times the normal amount of testosterone in his body because he was taking a lot of steroids. He had been taking steroids for a while and there were also steroid 
bottles found around the home. Chris also had Xanax and hydrocodone in his system. Now, Nancy's official cause of death was strangulation and the manner of her death was homicide. And she had a lot of bruising on her legs and her lower extremities. She also had blunt force trauma injuries to her head, back, and the middle of her chest. And this was indicated by soft tissue hemorrhaging. As I said earlier, Chris had put his knee in the middle of Nancy's back and pretty much broke it while he was trying to restrain her. Now, this is where people get very confused. So Nancy's blood alcohol level was 0.184, which is twice the legal limit of Georgia, which is where they lived. People are wondering, why did alcohol show up in Nancy's blood, but not Chris's if Nancy died before Chris? Well, this level of alcohol that was in her system, it could be unreliable because her body had already started decomposing by this point. So because Nancy was the first one to be killed, her blood alcohol test cannot be considered as accurate as Chris's. And this can affect the amount of alcohol that is detected during a test. And this is caused by something known as post-mortem fermentation, which occurs when the body is not kept cool after death. And keep in mind, Nancy's body was lying in the house for about two to three days before she was found. So it's very likely that her blood alcohol level almost doubled because her body was not kept cool and began decomposing, which can cause the blood alcohol content to not be accurate. So is it possible that Nancy drank Yes. However, she probably didn't drink as much as what was indicated in her blood alcohol test that was conducted after her body had been sitting in the home decomposing for days. Going back to why there was no alcohol found in Chris's system, it could be because his body had not decomposed yet. Because keep in mind, Chris had only been dead for a day before his body was found. Because there was a less amount of time between the time he was tested and the time he passed, it's very possible that the alcohol alcohol was able to leave his system and no longer be detected. Therefore, post-mortem fermentation didn't have time to set in because he had only been dead for one day. So that's been a really big point of contention for people. Again, we still don't know when alcohol was consumed, but there's just a lot of factors at play. So keep that in mind. Nancy also had hydrocodone, hydromorphone, and alprazolam in her system when she passed. However, none of these drugs caused her death. Daniel's official cause of death was asphyxia and the manner of death was homicide. Now, there were internal injuries to the throat that indicated asphyxia. However, there was no bruising on his neck. And a lot of people believe that Chris used one of his finishing moves in order to strangle his son, which is just awful. The investigators haven't been able to determine that, but there were no finger markings on his neck. So most likely he did not strangle him with his hands. Daniel was sedated with Xanax before he was killed, as I said earlier, so it is likely that he was unconscious while he was killed. Now I'm gonna kind of go into some of the evidence that was found. So there was a knife that was found under Daniel's bed, but it wasn't used, and there are a few theories as to why it was there. So the first theory is that Chris originally planned on using the knife, but decided against it for whatever his reason may have been, and he just left it there, or, and this one breaks my heart, Daniel had this knife hidden under his bed out of fear of his father and what his father may do. Again, we're not able to determine which one it is, but this knife was not used. As I said earlier, there was a bottle of wine as well as 10 beer cans, empty beer cans might I add, found in the home. The next day, Monday, June 25th, this was the day that everybody found out about the death of the Benoit family. This was the day that the welfare check was done. And this day, Nancy's sister Sandra, she was actually having a self-care day per Nancy's advice. So Nancy told her, you know, go ahead, spoil yourself, have a self-care day. So this is the day that she decided to do that. She went shopping, she had some lunch and some wine, she went to the movies. And once she got out of the movie theater, Sandra turned her phone back on and she had 22 missed calls from her parents. And she called them back and asked them, you know, what is going on? And they said that they wanted to wait until she drove all the way home, got in her house and sat 
sat down and it was only then that they told her that her sister Nancy had passed away and Sandra was so distraught that she had to go to the hospital and be sedated. Chris's oldest son, David, who was 14 at the time, he was with his mother, Martina, who's Chris's first wife. And she kept getting calls on her cell phone from an unknown number and she was just declining it, declining it, declining it. But eventually she answered because she said, okay, something might be wrong. When she answers the phone, it's the police. And they're telling her that she needs to come to the station immediately. They get to the station and this is where a police officer has to break the news to them that Chris, Nancy, and Daniel were all dead. And David recalls in an interview that he was so upset that he started to punch the cop in the chest, telling him that I don't believe you, you're lying. You know, he was very angry, he was very upset. The cop was understanding and realized that he was just, you know, he received this horrible news. He's obviously distraught. So he decides to calm him down, gives him a hug, and he takes him for a walk and talks to him. I can't even imagine how David must have been feeling because that was his father. His father murdered one of his sons. I couldn't imagine the conflict I would be feeling. So at this time, David didn't know what his father had done and no one really knew what he had done except for investigators. And people in the WWE that knew Chris, worked with Chris, they didn't know the details of the investigation. They had no clue. They just knew that something tragic had happened and that Chris and his whole family were gone. So they were not aware that this was being investigated as a murder-suicide. So that night, Monday night, June 25th, the night that everybody found out what had happened or found out that the Benoit family was gone. The WWE decides to cancel the match in Corpus Christi for the night and they turned their show into a three-hour memorial for Chris. All the wrestlers were just on air. They were giving tributes to Chris and the family, speaking about how great of a guy he was and how great of a wrestler he was, how sad they were by this horrible tragedy and how much they loved him as a person. They just felt terrible for him and his family. But it wasn't until after the memorial that they all learned that Chris murdered his wife, his young son, and then killed himself. And the WWE, they faced a lot of backlash for having a show dedicated to a murderer without knowing that he was a murderer. Um, I think by this point, it was actually out in the public or there were some rumblings, but the WWE, they didn't do their homework. They didn't do their research. I think they just went ahead with their tribute because they felt like that's what they were supposed to do. But no one really took the time to figure out what happened. So they pretty much just gave an entire memorial to a murderer. And a lot of people that were featured on this memorial, a lot of wrestlers that knew, loved, and worked with Chris, they were pretty upset because they were like, you had me on TV glorifying and glamorizing and humanizing a murderer and you didn't tell me. But I mean, they didn't know. They didn't do their homework. So might have been ill-advised on the WWE's part, but people were pretty upset about it. And the next night after learning what had happened, they decided to have the matches go on as planned. But Vince McMahon decided to give an address at the very beginning of the show, renouncing the three-hour memorial that they had just had the night before. And Vince pretty much said, there will be no mention of Chris Benoit's name pretty much ever again. He said that his name was going to be erased from any and all speaking and talking about the WWE. And he meant it because Chris's name was erased from everything within a week. And it was almost like he never existed, which is it's pretty sad. But it's also like, I mean, you you killed your family. What, I don't know. What, what do you want them to do? You know, I think they did at that point what they felt was the best thing to do and to save face for themselves. So Nancy and Daniel's funeral was held at the Lady of Lourdes Church in Daytona Beach, Florida, and they were both cremated. Now, there was a little bit of controversy surrounding Nancy and Daniel's funeral because WWE announcer Jim Ross, he showed up to the memorial service and the family was not happy about it. I don't really watch wrestling, but if you have watched it, you know that Jim Ross is that Southern guy. He wears a really big cowboy hat and he sits at the announcer table. And Nancy's family, they didn't feel like him being there was genuine. They felt like he was kind of just there to show face and make the WWE look good and make it look like they cared. Family said that he was the first person to leave as soon as the service was over and that he sat in the back of the church. They were also upset that he wore his cowboy hat, but he claimed that he took it off as soon as he entered the church. But who knows? Those are conflicting reports. And what really made the family upset was the fact that they found out that Jim Ross spoke to reporters on his way into the church, denying 
denying that this tragic event was caused by steroids and drugs. And we're going to get into that part a little bit later. But Jim denies that he was the first one to leave and he defends his choice of sitting in the back because he didn't want to draw attention to himself. He wanted to give the family space to grieve and he just wanted to be respectful. But Nancy's family, as well as David, Chris's son, he claims that nobody from the WWE reached out to him or his family. And Nancy's sister, she says the same thing. No one from the WWE reached out to them. Chris's family held a separate small private funeral for him in Alberta, Canada, which is where he was raised. And he was also cremated. Now, as you can imagine, there was a huge media frenzy surrounding this case. And the main reason was because a lot of people felt like this could have been caused by roid rage. It was said before, Chris lost his temper a lot because he was on steroids. They felt like this could have been the cause of that. So a lot of people really started to look at the WWE kind of sideways because they were like, this is your wrestler. Why are you letting people use steroids? You're supposed to be doing checks for this kind of thing. And they really felt like they dropped the ball on this and that they may have had a sort of hand in this. Now, Chris had actually been using steroids since he was in high school, supposedly. So I can only imagine the effects that that would have on him. There's pretty clear proof because in his autopsy, it was found that he had 10 times the normal amount in his bloodstream at the time. And there were also texts between Chris and Nancy that were released. And Nancy was calling Chris out for his steroid abuse. She said, and I quote, I will not accept this steroid induced roller coaster ride of emotional abuse. Get off the crap you're on. It's making you passive aggressive and I don't need the abuse. If you recall earlier, Nancy left Chris for a while. She fought for divorce because she couldn't take his temper. She couldn't take his outbursts. He would get really dangerous. And she was his wife. She lived with him. I'm sure she knew what he was doing. So seems pretty plausible if you ask me. The WWE actually had a wellness program and they were said to be testing their wrestlers against steroids, but everyone passed the steroid checks, including Chris. So the wellness program was pretty much a joke. But of course, Vince McMahon defended the program. He claimed that, oh, we test our wrestlers and we're very conscientious about it. But Chris passed the wellness checks leading up to the murders. And as I just said, he was found to have 10 times the normal amount of testosterone in his body. So, I mean, the proof is right there. The wellness program actually, just a quick side note, it was, it actually got very strict right after Eddie Guerrero died. But eventually it kind of led up over time and just within two years, it was already back to being just as lenient as it was before that. As you can imagine, the WWE, they're under fire. They swear that it's not a roid rage thing. This was carried out over three days. This wasn't just an impulsive temper tantrum. There's something more going on. Honestly, the WWE were not the only people who felt this way. Another person felt this way as well. And his name was Dr. Chris Nowinski. Now he was a former wrestler who became a neuroscientist after he had gotten way too many concussions. He started to kind of notice a change in himself and he felt like it was caused because of how many head injuries he had gotten. And he wanted to learn more about the human brain. So he heard the Chris Benoit story. He actually knew Chris and he felt like, mm, I don't know if this is roid rage either. Given the elements of the case and the way everything played out, he felt like there may be something else going on. And what he theorized was going on is known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, otherwise known as CTE. A CTE is a progressive brain condition that's caused by repeated blows to the head and repeated concussions. It can cause memory loss, impaired judgment, aggression, impulse control problems, and personality or mood changes. And Chris Benoit actually came to Dr. Nowinski and he talked to him and he said, hey, you know, I heard that you're really into the neuroscience and you're learning about CTE and concussions. You know, call me sometime and I would love to talk to you about it. And Dr. Nowinski believes that Chris wanted to talk to him about this because maybe he felt like something was going on with himself. You know, maybe he felt a change in his own brain and he attributed it to that too. It was a concern of his. So Dr. Chris Nowinski, 
he decides, you know, okay, I'm going to reach out to the family. I'm going to see if they will allow me to do some testing on Chris's brain or send it off for testing so we can figure out if he had CTE. So Dr. Nowinski, he calls Chris's dad and his father says, yes, test his brain. Let's figure out, let's get some answers. And it took a month for the results to come in, but it came back that he was positive for not just CTE, but severe CTE. Chris had severe and extensive brain damage at only 40 years old. And this damage changed who he was and how he behaved. And it could have caused him to commit these horrible acts. So the roid rage story kind of died out pretty quickly, even though some people still think that that may have had something to do with it. I personally think it had something to do with it, but it was found out later that Chris did have CTE and this really affected his brain chemistry and it changed him. And a lot of people feel like this coupled with the horrible loss that he was experiencing when he lost his best friend, Eddie, pretty much sealed his fate right then and there, which is just really tragic. Today, Nancy would be 58 years old and Daniel would be 22. I found out while I was researching this case that Daniel is actually my age. He was born the same year as me, just a few months earlier in February. And it's just so tragic that their lives were taken from them by someone that was supposed to love and protect them and be their for them and make them feel secure. He was the person that they really should have been afraid of. It's just, oh gosh, I'll never understand why people murder their own family, especially their own kids. You brought this child into the world. It's literally your job, your calling to love them and protect them. And the fact that you were the person that they needed protecting from, that boils my blood. That to me is the most tragic form of crime. It's it's really, it really is just heartbreaking, honestly. And Nancy, she really blazed a trail in the wrestling world for women who don't actually wrestle because she was a valet, she was a manager, she was more than just a pretty woman on the side. She brought something. She brought purpose and she brought meaning to her crew and whoever she was managing. She had a great role and she was a strong and outspoken woman. She created that role because once she stopped, the role pretty much disappeared. So she didn't just create the role, she was the role. A lot of people feel like she deserves to be in the WWE Hall of Fame. I also feel like she should be, but it is a little bit difficult because she does have the Benoit last name. A lot of people don't even want to see that name anywhere in the WWE Hall of Fame because it's tainted. That last name is tainted, but I still think they should put her in there. Maybe they could just use her first name or use her moniker woman who was her most famous character. But I definitely think she deserves to be in there. She's one of a kind in my opinion. My heart really does break for these two. And Daniel and David, they were just so close. Daniel really was such a bright little boy. And David lost his father and his brother and a second mom. And he has to sit there and live with that. David's 29 today and he still to this day defends his father. And he notes that he doesn't feel like what his dad did defines who he was. And he still calls Chris his hero. He loved his dad. He still loves his dad. He absolutely loves Nancy and Daniel. And I can't imagine the position that he must be in when it comes to his father. He still to this day defends him even after the bullying and the backlash that he's experienced from defending his father. But he still stands proud and tall and says, nope, that's still my dad. I still love him. And yeah, I can imagine how conflicting that would feel on his side. And as far as Chris's legacy, honestly, it's pretty much been erased from WWE history. There's a huge black mark on his name. He will be nowhere in WWE Hall of Fame, which is so sad for him, even though he, in my opinion, deserves it. He was such a good wrestler. He was, and he made a lot of great strides and he created his career and he was very driven, but what he did is unforgivable and unspeakable. And when you do things like that, you you can't be honored for your work. It completely overshadows what he did in his life. So unfortunately, Chris has been erased. And I know I've said a few Chris's in here. There's like three Chris's in this story, but Chris Jericho, who is another wrestler who was close with Chris, he remembers Chris saying that if you don't have the respect of your peers, you have nothing. And it's so sad that Chris lost everyone's respect, the respect of him as a person, the respect of his work. I mean, he has none of that anymore. Um, But I can imagine people 
people feeling very conflicted about how they feel about him. Chavo Guerrero, he later came out and said he feels very conflicted because he loves Chris, but he hates what he did. He can't forgive what he did, but he also still feels this pull towards him because he knew him and the guy that he knew him as, he absolutely loved. It's really conflicting. It's really hard, but we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. I want to thank you guys for listening. If you want a wrestler series, again, please let me know. There's so many stories to cover that I'd be happy to take a deep dive into. Thank you for taking this deep dive into crime with me, and I hope to see you in the water soon.